Namo tasa bhagavato arahanto sama sambodasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahanto sama sambodasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahanto sama sambodasa. Homage to the Blessed One, the Perfected One, the Fully Enlightened One. wanted to make an intention to start off with this homage that I neglected to uh, chant on the eve on our first evening when we um, introduced the refuges so ah, nice to be here Very moved with all of us here tonight and these past days of very intensive practice and I've had a chance to meet some of you uh, personally in the interviews and I'm just touched with uh, the sincerity, the vulnerability, the courage, the hard work that everyone is doing here. Deep bows to that. So I'm going to start off with a reading. And actually, I got a few uh, notes about poems and readings. And at the end of the retreat, I'll try to remember to um, list my website that actually has all the poems you would ever like to look at and read that are wonderful and beautiful. And you can get them from there. And tonight, I want to spend some time talking about working with challenges and then, of course, uh, the 32 parts of the body practice. And I'll begin with um, a reading from Rod McLaver called Why Do We Exist? Why do we exist? 50 trillion cells make up the human body, and each of those cells in turn consists of atoms, countless millions or billions of them depending on the function of the specific cell. And of the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space, protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons, empty space just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is space held together, space unified, even if for only a little while by a life force. A life force needs a purpose. Without a purpose, there's no reason for the unity. Without a purpose, life deteriorates, tends to dissolve back into randomness. Without a purpose, a life is less than the sum of its parts. The atoms existed before the human body and they'll be here after the life has gone. But in the meantime, in this incredibly short interval, the atoms are held together by an indescribable and unknowable force, the empty space. However, perhaps that unknowable force has a purpose, has a path, has a destiny. It may be a destiny denied, but there is a reason for this unity. A life force exists on borrowed energy. A life force is captured for a brief while from the surrounding world, and then it goes back into the surrounding soup. In this brief interval, which is called our life, We have come together for investigation. Even though I sense that, um, that we come here knowingly, and we come here perhaps with some notion that there's something to this, and yet it's also some sense of embracing 
the challenging parts within us that are arising. Sometimes in my, uh, oh, my colloquial expressions, and um, it's like kind of going into retreat is like walking into a hall of mirrors. And everywhere I turn, I see me, myself, and I. This can intensify the process of our own investigation of being with ourselves without the so many distractions and busyness that uh, occupy ourselves in most of our day-to-day lives. Because of this intensity, there's times where we feel alone, separate, disconnected, perhaps with feeling anger, restlessness, sleep, doubt, judgments. Sometimes it feels like we're living inside what we used to call when I lived in the monastery, a shit accelerator. (laughs) On the outside, it looks pretty peaceful, you know, beautiful hills of Marin and Bambi deer floating around the meadow and turkeys and people feeding you. We don't even have to wash dishes and, you know, it's kind of a nice setup. But inside, it's another story at times. Inside, we may be meeting and being with parts of ourselves that we wouldn't want to enter into that type of neighborhood anywhere. (laughs) And yet, we're here. Kind of reminds me of this beautiful poem by Hafiz that's called It Felt Like Love. The poem's a very beautiful poem. It's about how did the rose ever open its heart and give its beauty? To the world. How did the rose ever open its heart and give its beauty to the world? And it felt the encouragement of the light. So we're kind of like feeling the encouragement of the light, of compassion and wisdom. And though sometimes it feels like it's against our being, it felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we'll all remain much too frightened. Otherwise, we'll all remain much too frightened. We're feeling that encouragement of the light, the encouragement of the light of awareness and of compassion. Fizz has another just beautiful thing. He says, I wish I could just show you all when you're lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. I wish I could just show you all the astonishing light of your own being. And unfortunately or fortunately, that's something for we to discover that within ourselves. It seems at times that we can just spin and spin with what's coming up within us and the judging mind, the critic, the blamer. They're not getting it right. Wanting this, wanting that. Kabir says, friend, please tell me, what can I do about this world that it keeps spinning out? I gave up sewn sewn cloths and I wore a robe. But then one day I noticed that the cloth was well-woven, so I bought some burlap. But I still throw it over uh, my shoulder very elegantly. So then I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving my greed, and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it often still holds on to one thing. But it's very interesting, Kabir further says, that I went searching for the shop where the merchant would say, there's nothing of value here. And I found it and I stayed. These poems arise out of the richness of not wanting. I went searching for the shop where the merchant would say, there's nothing of value here, and I found it and I stayed.
This journey that we are on is the journey within. I'll never forget many years ago when I was in undergraduate school. After flunking out and being remitted back on warning, I was a pretty lost person. I'd had a lot of death earlier in my life, and I think it's just set me from a very early age. What is this life? What is the meaning of this life? The wars in Vietnam, the Beatles grew their hair long, the times were a change, and many of us remember, or some of us. <laughs> and finally, when I came back to school, being readmitted by warning, I, for whatever reason, why I have no idea, there was this class that said Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. And I decided to take it. I don't know why. Very foreign from my point of view. But the first thing that uh, we were assigned to was the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. And in epigram number 47, it said, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And it was as if a Zen master had just clobbered me with a gigantic redwood tree. <laughs> and I kind of woke up to the fact that I had been looking, perhaps in my life prior to that, outside of myself. And that this clobbering was telling me to look inside. It was a powerful, important part of my life. The notion of looking inside ourselves at times is very foreign, and even way back in the year 399, long time ago, 399, St. Augustine writes that people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains, people wonder at the huge waves of the seas and at the long courses of the rivers, people wonder at the vast compass of the ocean and the circular motion of the stars, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Kind of takes a breath away. We can relate to that. Walking right past ourselves without ever wondering. And I was mentioning perhaps earlier, um, or maybe I was, didn't mention it here, there's this character in the book by um, James Joyce and the Dubliners called, um, and then um, the character's name was Mr. Duffy, and it was said of him that he happened to live a short distance away from his body. <laughs> and here's actually the, the quote. Mr. Duffy lived a little distance from his body regarding his own acts with doubtful side glasses. He had an odd autobiographical habit which led him to compose in his mind from time to time a short sentence about himself containing a subject in the third person and a predicate in the past tense. <laughs> Mr. Duffy. But we can relate to Mr. Duffy at times. And this practice of the body that we're really focusing on, this foundation of mindfulness, is powerful embodiment. As we get inside and begin to do our practice, we get greeted at times by our judgments, as I was mentioning, and our criticisms. We can be very hard on ourselves and think that we're not made of the right stuff. This is a poem that perhaps some of you have heard before, but it really speaks to this quality that sometimes we are so up on edge with ourselves of doing the meditation right, being of the right stuff. And so this goes, if you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, you are made of the right meditative stuff. If you can eat same, the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people 
take things out on you through no fault of yours, something goes wrong. Or if you take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, you are most likely the family dog. <laughs> so much for our right stuff. Bhanti Gunaratana, this is from his book in Mindfulness in Plain English. He goes, somewhere in this process of mindfulness of practice, you'll come face to face with the sudden and shocking realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrinking, gibbering madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem, he says. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's just been this way, but you just haven't noticed. But sometimes we get very carried away with our fears. Very carried away. Paranoia begins to sit in. This is by Philip Lopate. He says, We who are your closest friends feel the time has come to tell you that every Thursday we've been meeting as a group to devise ways to keep you in perpetual uncertainty, frustration, discontent, and torture by neither, neither loving you as much as you want nor cutting you adrift. Your analyst is, is in on it, plus your boyfriend and your ex-husband, and we pledge to disappoint you as long as you need us. In announcing our association, we realize we have placed in your hands a possible antidote against uncertainty and indeed against ourselves, but since our Thursday nights have brought us to a community of purpose rare in itself with you as its natural center, we feel hopeful you'll continue to make unreasonable demands for our affection if not as a consequence of your disastrous personality, then for the good of the collective. <laughs> Don't you just know that space inside of you? At least I do. But there is that part of us that wants to be connected. And that being in practice sometimes, we can really feel our aloneness. Just like Piglet in the house on Pooh Corner, Piglet, he sided up to Pooh from behind and he said, Pooh, he whispered, Pooh. Yes, Piglet? Nothing, said Piglet, taking Pooh's paw. I just wanted to be sure of you. How many times he have like a little, my little, my son, he'll just want to get my hand and hold it. Just want to be sure of you, Daddy. Just want to be sure of you. Perhaps the heart of the Dharma is holding our hands if we can let that in and letting us know of our assuredness. This is intense work. Hafiz, again, he says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting for three to five days in your closet. This is kind of the big closet here. <laughs> that would do. Just sitting in this big closet here. And that means not leaving. Better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches. Well, we got a friend down the street there. And a chamber pot, too. No reading. Uh-uh. No writing, either. That'd be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox. This sitting alone, though, is not recommended if you're normally sedated or have been under a doctor's surveillance because of your brain, dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried here. There is a ruby buried here. Part of working with our practice is being open as well to new perspectives of seeing things differently. We at times get so caught in how we see things and determine this to be reality. 
Yet, of course, there's you know, approximately 40 or more people in this room, and depending on which cushion you're sitting on, you know, I get kind of like, yeah, this is what the room looks like, sitting here. But then actually sitting over here, over there, offers a different perspective. One to offer for our practice as a, as a, a support is being open to perspectives. Sometimes we get so certain about things, just like the woman here, Valerie Cox, it says about that um, there was a woman one night waiting at an airport with several long hours before her flight, and she hunted for a book in the airport shop, and she bought a bag, a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but she happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She munched cookies and watched the clock as this gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. And when only one was left, she wondered, what he'd do? With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and he broke it in half, and he offered her half as he ate the other. And she snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, and then sought her book, which was, which was almost complete, and as she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise, for there was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. <laughs> if mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his, and he tried to shear. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. How we see things. Margaret Wheatley writes, I know what we notice, what we notice because of who we are. We create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created and we self-seal. We don't notice anything except those things that confirm already what we think already about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. So this journey is the pathway inwards. St. Isaac of Nineve, from a Christian mystic from Iraq and lived there in the ninth century. He says, be at peace with your own soul, with your own being, then heaven and earth will be at peace with you. Enter eagerly into the treasure house that is within you, and you will see the things that are in heaven. For this one single entry, this ladder that leads to the kingdom, is hidden within you. So dive, dive into yourself, and there you will discover the stairs by which to ascend. I love that quality, diving into yourself. So we've been diving in this retreat into this body, into awareness of the body. And I'd like to now talk about the body practices. The Buddha taught... Um, what was called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness that he exclaimed was the direct way towards greater freedom and peace. 
And within these foundations of mindfulness is the foundation of the body, foundations of feelings, foundation of consciousness, mind states, and the, and the foundation of the dharmas, universal important teachings of Buddha. One thing that we want to really understand that each of these foundations is interrelated and connected. They are not really separate from one another, just like we cannot separate a person from its shadow. We cannot say, separate a human being into just being only mind or only body. They are associated. Within the body sensations, there's times where there's feelings that arise and emotions come up, maybe various thoughts come up. Then, of course, we have some of these cardinal teachings that help support us to recognize when we're experiencing hindrances, recognizing perhaps and assisting and getting allies and factors of enlightenment and so forth. So these foundations are interrelated and associated with one another. And often when you practice one, you touch upon them all. But in our practices this week, we're working with the body. And in the foundations of the body practices, there's actually six distinct practices. And we've been working, now we're working with the first four. The first one is the mindfulness of breathing practice that the Buddha first instructs us to work with. The second is to develop the mindfulness of what postures, we've been being mindful while we're standing and walking, lying, seated down. Third aspect of the mindfulness of the body is the mindfulness of, of daily activities. And we've been talking about the mindfulness of eating and all these different activities, dressing, showering, defecating, urinating, everything can be part of the mindfulness of our day-to-day -day activities, cultivating our mindfulness in everyday life. Those are the first three. And the fourth one is this cultivation of the 32 parts of the body meditation that we've begun to, to uh, go into. And we will go into it more in the next few days. The last two practices, and I may speak about these uh, in the next talk that I give, is about the practices of the mindfulness of the elements. Or perhaps Mary Grace will give. We haven't figured out yet what we're doing next. but. I want to just uh, name that these six practices, that the fourth, as I'm mentioning, is the 32 parts. The fifth is the meditation on the four primary elements of solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature that exists within the body. And the last is a very powerful meditation on the mindfulness of death. And I'll spare you the graphic details, but it's nine different stages of decomposition coming from the first day of one's death until the body turns to dust. And there's various contemplations along the way for that process. These are the practices that the Buddha taught in the mindfulness of the body. So speaking of the body, one of the most powerful revelations that I get with, well, there's a lot of wonderful things that I love about the 32 parts, but one of it is, is just the fact that we have a body and that we're getting into the body. And I wish I could have a little projector behind me and this cartoon could be blown up. But if you look closely, it's, it's a picture of a few cows sitting on a pasture, standing on a pasture eating grass. It's a Gary Larson far side cartoon. And they're just eating there because that's what cows do. They sit in pastures and they eat grass. Well, one day, this one cow all of a sudden has this epiphany. And you can see kind of the grass dropping out of its jaws as it, it's like, oh my gosh. And the cow begins to say, hey, wait a minute. This is grass. We've been eating grass. Wait a minute. This is grass. We've been eating grass. Like, no sugar, Sherlock. Um, that's what cows do. But in the same way, we could have the same, I, I could be this guy sitting out with other people in the human world and all of a sudden I'm just starting to yell, hey, wait a minute, I got a body. I got a body. We got bodies, do you know that? We got bodies. 
Head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, marrow, kidney, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. And many more. Wait a minute, we have a body. Sometimes you think we don't have a body. We just live in some type of virtual cyberspace. And it's interesting. I guess on the internet, there's this thing called Second Life. If you don't like this life, you can go on the internet and you can get a house there and, and live a, live a second. It's called Second Life. You have this whole virtual world where you're not even, it's not even real. But then again, sometimes we think that we're just cerebral um, cyberspace. Um, we got a body. We have got a body. And believe in you, me. Mary Grace and I and Marcy, we've been hearing a lot about your bodies the last few days. I mean, she's got a major clinic going over here. So, you know, she should be charging a little extra money here for this, you know? Because it's like, you know, there's a lot of pain going on in this room. We got a body. We got a body. Mary Oliver, she writes in a beautiful poem called The Body. And she says, bless the fingers for they are darting as fire. Bless the little hairs of the body, for they're softer than grass. Bless the hips, for they're cunning beyond all machinery. Bless the mouth, for it is the describer. Bless the tongue, for it is the maker of words. Bless the eyes, for they are the gifts of the angels, for they tell the truth. Bless the shoulders, for they are strength and shelter. Bless the thumb, for when working, it has a godly grip. Bless the feet for their knuckles and their modesty, and bless the spine, for it is the whole story. This body. The Buddha speaks about the body in the Samyutta Nikaya. This is one of the... Um, text from the canonical literature. This is what the Buddha says about the body. He says, I do not teach that the cessation of the world of suffering could be done without the attainment of nirvana, the enlightened heart, the realization. Within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, is the world. It's the origin, its cessation, and the path leading to peace and freedom. It is found inside this fathom-long body. I was introduced to the 32 parts of the body meditation about 28 years ago by Tungpu Lucero, who was my, one of my teachers. Was a, renowned meditation master of Burma. He died in the year 1986 at the age of 90, and he and Mahasi Sero, which some of you might uh, know of, um, were contemporaries, and they actually each had, uh, they, they each had the same teacher, Mingam Sero. Tungpula Sero was a forest monk and lived in the forest traditions, lived um, as a, an ascetic for a number of years, traveling here and there, practicing very intensively mindfulness. And he taught many different meditation practices, but one of them that he introduced to us was the 32 parts of the body meditation. And it's very funny, having been you know, introduced to this so many years ago, and even though I went on with my life, eventually left the monastery, got married into the advanced training, and I'll have wife and two children. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and was very fortunate to be, able to, to be able to work in an area that was in alignment with my meditation practice. So I was so deeply involved in meditation and very fortunate that I get to teach what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And I work in a number of medical centers working with people with stress, pain, and illness. There's a number of you in this room that I initially met in MBSR programs, mindfulness-based stress reduction programs. And one of the key practices in MBSR 
is this practice called the body scan meditation, which is a very methodical practice beginning with the left foot in working our way up to the top of our head. Getting in touch with the physical sensations within the body that potentially as well open up the door into our thoughts and emotions. It's a very body-oriented practice. And all of these many years teaching the body scan, I also kept the practice of the 32 parts of the body um, alive within me. I felt there was, in many ways, I would like to say that I think that the 32 parts of the body is the original body scan. And it was the, the 32 parts of the body kind of percolated with me for about 26 years. <laughs> it's funny to say that, 26 years. But I've been around now. I'm just about 55. But a, a couple of years ago, I decided that I wanted to begin to have some classes in it. To, I'm a student of the 32 parts that wants to teach it now a little bit to get more experience. And so I began to uh, offer some classes in Santa Cruz and some daylongs. And um, it's been inc incredibly rich and meaningful and very profound. And so I feel a calling, if you will, to want to um, honor Sierra's uh, legacy and this practice, which is the Buddha's legacy. The, this practice is talked about as one of the most eminent of practices. Actually, Simple Lucero said that, I actually wrote this quote of him regarding the 32 parts of the body, that he said that it was one of the most eminent among all of the foundations of mindfulness. This meditation is unlike any other kind of meditation. It is brought to light and taught only during the times when the Buddhas arise. And in the West, this practice is very little, um, it's not known that much. It's hardly ever practiced. If anything, perhaps in monasteries, they may chant these parts. And it's wonderful and an honor to be here to, to talk about this practice that I love and also feel it is so incredibly enriching and important and profound. The Buddha talked about this practice as having many benefits and perhaps the most important one beyond any other, is that the erroneous view of self becomes eradicated. Where is this I, me, and my? Is it in my head here, my body here, nails, teeth, the whole litany? Where is this I to be found? But it also can be used at times as a healing practice, and there's been countless stories of people that have used this practice in times of illness that have had some gain. And Never forget my dear friend Barbara Roberts, who's now passed away and was given a one-month-year prognosis with a metastatic lung cancer. And she came to the monastery, and she met with the, the monks, and they taught her the 32 parts of the body. And she worked with it, particularly on the pentad, the five groupings of the parts with the lungs that was associated with the lung. And every year, for the next six years, she would send a postcard to her oncologist, just a little note on there saying, still here, Barbara Roberts. She eventually did pass away from her cancer, but was thoroughly convinced that this practice has extended her life way, way more than what the doctor's prognosis was. Actually, I, Barbara sent me, this was shortly before her death, and I've actually never read poem out loud before to a group of people and I feel inspired to read it and it's called Of Life and Death by Barbara Roberts. So she's reflecting on, she's knowing that she's dying now and she's a very sincere practitioner of, of mindfulness, the Buddha Dharma. She says, it's not the will to live which sustains my life but release from fear. I've not outwitted death but broken free from the stranglehold of fear. At Christmas, we celebrate the wonder of birth. At Easter, the miracle of rebirth. What then of death? Without death, or without fear, I should say, without fear, death unfolds like a warm cloak of soft black wool. Death is the abyss from which all life emerges, drawn 
by the light. Hmm. It's also talked about in very practical levels of some of these benefits of the 32 parts that practicing this meditation, you can become the conqueror of boredom and delight, the conqueror of fear and dread. You can uproot pride, attachment, and gain knowledge. You can have the ability to bear much more easily intense cold and intense heat. One amasses deep concentration, one will be intelligent. One attains absorption, jhanas. One attains, of course, the supreme freedom, nirvana. We also mentioned that this practice benefits that one can become aware of unskillful states of mind and then can subdue them. And then one becomes aware and promotes skillful states of mind and develops them. This practice is a powerful practice of penetrating to see this body as it really is. And it's, there's no coincidence that the Buddha teaches the mindfulness of the elements practice after the 32 parts of the body because we begin to see as we do this practice that the body begins to break down into elements. And we can sense these elements within us, the solidness of the bones and the teeth, the wetness of the moisture, perspiration, the blood, the urine, the ventilation of the air of the lungs breathing in and out, the ability to ambulate and move, and the sense of temperature, the fire element, the sense of um, we can feel heat, we feel cool, this body burns at 98.6 degrees. Achun Mun, one of the most revered Thai forest meditation masters. He was the teacher of Achan Cha and a number of other forest meditation masters. And of course, Achan Cha was Jack Cornfield's teacher. And Achan Mun, he says, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert, to desert the body. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature, see the elements, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world become clear. And in this way, the purity of mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. In your investigation of the world, Never allow the mind to desert the body. So there's questions to be asked about this practice. Why these 32 parts? Later tonight, I'll be giving you the sheet with the names of the parts on there. And there's quite a number of parts that are not mentioned. The pancreas, the genitals, lymph system, I mean, there's numerous, numerous parts that are not listed. And as much research as I have investigated within the canonical literature, I really don't know why. Perhaps we speculate that this was uh, some of the rudimentary knowledge of anatomy. But more importantly, because again, this practice was taught 2600, nearly 2,600 years ago, more importantly, this practice is pointing to um, the sense of where is this me and my in any of these parts? And of course, we can add other parts to this practice. I mean, you know, there's lots and lots of parts in the body. But why these particular parts, we really don't know. But perhaps that's not really the point. The point is to begin to penetrate with this practice, to begin to see this body as it really is. And today, for example, we were with head here, hardened cells protruding from the head, the purpose and definition for thermal regulation and protection from ultraviolet light. It takes a whole different, that's a whole different idea about head hair than the dew that we're working with. <laughs> and how many hairdo days have we had where we've had some immense suffering, or maybe no hairdo days. And, and so 
this is part of the point of this practice, is to begin to see the body as it really is. It's very sobering. It's very sobering when we begin to hear the medical definitions, the function, what it's really about. Why this order? Why start with head hair, body hair, needles, cheese, skin, then flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, so forth? 20 solid parts and 12 liquid parts. I think there's very good reason on the first five parts in the order. Why the others were arranged the way they were arranged, I really don't know. And it's a very curious because we find that next to feces is the brain. But actually, maybe that's not so weird after all. But these first five parts, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. Think about it. Think about these are the parts that we see with one another. These are the parts that the cosmetic industry makes billions and billions of dollars a year on. And how much time have we fussed over our head hair, our body hair, our nails, our teeth, and our skin? Estheticians, cosmetic dentistry, manicures, hairdos, removal of hair. I mean, it goes on and on, all the things that we do with this, these parts of the body. So it's very sobering to begin to work with this practice and begin to recognize the true nature of this body. Perhaps the offering of this practice is it offers us a way to become a little less enchanted with it. In some of the texts, it's quite clear in their language. They use very strong words that could very, be very aversive to many of us. Words like repulsive nature of the body, the foul, meditation on the foul. I think many of us as Westerners have had enough issues with our body that we don't need to be told that it's foul and repugnant and repulsive. Maybe that's not skillful. And I love Achan Sumedho, who was one of um, Achan Cha's foremost Western disciples, where he gives a definition of the classical Pali word they use for repulsive, foul, so forth, is a word called asuba. But his definition of asuba really fits in very conveniently, very wonderfully, where he calls it as non-beautiful. So that offers a little less than repulsive nature. Because when also when you think about it, this body is the only body that we ever get. We're not going to be getting another body in this life, ever. We might get a hip, we might get a knee joint, we might even get a replaced heart, but we're not going to get a body transplant. This body is the only thing that we have. And so it's so important, too, that we recognize its true nature break the spell of enchantment, and to begin to see the body as it really is. This is why I feel it's very important to insert the loving-kindness practice at the end of each session, the importance of honoring this body, recognizing this is the vehicle in which we live within in this pathway towards greater freedom and greater peace. Very important that we bring this aspect in, not to inflate our sense of the body, infatuation, enchantment with it, but to recognize this is the vehicle in which we live. It's within this fathom-long body. This is what these, the Buddha's talking about in Achanman. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. This is the vehicle in which we live within. There was a time during the Buddha's time where a group of monks got really caught up in its repulsiveness and obsessed upon this. And the sad story is, is that they actually killed themselves as a result of this sense of wrong view, if you will, of the foulness of the body. Oh, what's the use? So we want to really make a distinction here, because if those of you that get very interested in this practice, you might see in the text the words foul, repugnant, repulsive, I want to remind you of Achan Cha and many of the other seros and teachers. It's pointing to the sense of seeing the true nature of the body.
begin to penetrate it as it really is. And again, this body is so precious. We want to treat this life, actually, from the Buddhist point of view, this life is considered to be so precious. There's a story in the sutta, and perhaps some of you have heard this, about a blind turtle that's swimming in the seven seas, and then there's kind of like a, like a donut-shaped small thing that's also floating in the seven seas. And the chances of that turtle coming up from deep in the water and all of a sudden going up through that ring is pretty remote. And so the parallel is that the preciousness of this life, the, the, to become a human being, the preciousness is so immense. We hold life, the Buddhists hold life to be sacred. Some of the very foundational precepts is this quality of ahimsa, nonviolence, non-harming, to abstain from causing pain through our bodily actions, through our words, through our behaviors, our, our thoughts, words, and actions. So we want to approach this practice with a sense of loving kindness. And actually, I've been offering this practice for the last couple of years. And ironically, I don't think hardly anyone has had an experience of repulsiveness. And actually, when they did, for example, working with bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, or feces, many people actually have a contrary experience of beginning to understand that these are the parts of the body that these are, that these are, this is what everyone has, and this is what's keeping my body going. Not that we're getting all pumped up about bile, phlegm, pus, and flat, but we, uh, but we understand that there's a purpose to this, that this is part of the human organism. And in some sense, what, what has developed contrary is not a sense of pride or like, oh, wow, you got a really nice phlegm, but there's a, there's a sense of, of, of more compassionate relationship with the body. That's been my experience in working with people doing this practice. It develops a sense of, of a compassionate relationship with the body, but also a sobering and deeply understanding of its nature. And perhaps less so, some sense of clinging and attachment to it. Also the sense of judgment, like you know, no matter, we look at bodies in all different shapes and sizes, and we get pulled to some and push away from others. But all of a sudden I remember this one woman saying, wow, you know, I was looking at this very obese woman, and I realized she's got the same parts that I got. We're not like very different. And there's a sense of, oh, we all got these parts. You know, put them in the blender. So I have about five more minutes and so much more, so we'll, I'll be mindful of that. How we do this practice? Well, today, I mean, this week, we're working with the practice, working with different groups, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. There's actually six groups, four groups of five solid parts in each, and two groups of liquids. Traditionally, when this meditation is done, as the way that Seto taught it, it actually takes 33 weeks to do, or eight months. This is the slow practice. And I've actually had two years where I've done this, and there's actually a few people in the room that have been through this practice, and one actually has been through it twice. And I think she's coming for a third time. But in these 33 weeks, we work with the practice five days forward, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. The next week, backwards, skin, teeth, nails, body, hair, head, hair. The third week, forward and backwards. And then in the fourth week, we go on to the next grouping, flesh, sinews, bone, bone marrow, kidney. And we do that for one week forwards, one week backwards, one week forward and backwards. And then we start back at square one again, and we do all 10 parts, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bone marrow, kidney, one week forward, one week backwards, one week forward and backwards. You get the drift. We're zigzagging, going in and out. So it actually takes about eight months, 33 weeks to complete. Mm -hmm. Wendy Yen, who's a um, poet, thinking of creativity, she lives in Santa Cruz, and she was working with the 32 parts, and she said, you know, I don't like those parts. I'm going to make up 110 different functions. It's a lot to read, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing, hungering, 
thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing, salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting, transporting, transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing, burning, building, copying, creating, destroying, cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, upholding, anchoring, propriocepting, sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, <sighs> tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, itching, scratching, shedding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying, and decaying, <laughs> and many more. The body. This week, we're diving into the body, this fathom-long body. So I'm going to be coming to an end shortly, and I want to just read you some very interesting facts about the human body. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique tongue print. Didn't know that one. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. Listen to this one. It takes 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. <coughs> Most people blink about 25 times a minute. Now, of course, that I'm saying it, we might do more. About 20,000 times a day. Every breath we inhale, billions of atoms end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit in an ice cube, but the string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from the Earth to the Sun and back again 400 times. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. <clears throat> the body replaces new head hair every two to five years. Except for me. <clears throat> the body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows a new skin once a month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you're listening to this sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that 98% of the atoms in less than one year change in the body, replaces. The body replaces 98% of the atoms in less than one year. So, in other words, in any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they're atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as it was yesterday. So I'll just end with a childhood poem. I'm going to go with the Velveteen Rabbit. What's real? asked the rabbit one day. Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's the thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time and 
not just plays with you, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit? Yeah, sometimes it does, said the skin horse, for skin horse was truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. To become real takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you reel, most of your hair has been loved off <laughs> and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. And once you're real, you can't become real again. It lasts for always. So gentle hearts, courageous hearts, turning to face our fears and pains, opening to our joys. May we be at peace and may all beings everywhere, may they be at peace. have a period of walking practice and then we'll be coming back at nine and we're going to end the sitting tonight with about a 10 minute chant of the 32 parts of the body and we will then tomorrow morning each day we will start off with our first sitting with the chanting of the parts and we'll end the day with these parts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.